Well, this is a, a new format, a virtual retreat. This retreat is a substitute for our usual annual retreat for the Pacific Hermitage, which has happened every year for about 10 years. And we wanted to provide something during this time of uh, limited travel. And so by request, I was asked to do a retreat on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is certainly a suitable topic for this time. And the contents of this retreat are generally directed at people who have had experience in meditation. So it's more or less what I would teach to a fairly seasoned group of meditators who have been practicing the teachings of the Buddha, the Eightfold Path, and meditation, and have experience in retreats given in monasteries. And I realize there'll also be another audience watching this who may not have done that. And I'm not going to give a beginner's retreat in mindfulness or meditation. So you will have to fill in the blank spots by looking at other talks I've given as preliminaries. Introductions to mindfulness are available online. So I will just be giving more or less the teachings to a theoretical group here who have signed up for the retreat. And so that's a little prelude for those who are new to this or just watching it. So the four foundations of mindfulness. Now, now normally you'll hear, you'll get mindfulness retreats, but this is titled the four foundations of mindfulness because mindfulness is taught by the Buddha as the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path. And I will be again and again reminding people that this is not merely a course in mindfulness, that this is a course in the Buddhist version of mindfulness, and it's called Samma Sati. So Sati is the word for mindfulness. Samma, S-A-M-M-A, is the word for correct, right, suitable, path factor mindfulness. That is very different than the general term for mindfulness. Quite often, uh, mindfulness is taught as mere attention, as an enhanced sense of attention, and all kinds of miraculous, wonderful qualities are given uh, in the enhancement of one's ability to pay attention. But that is not what Buddhist mindfulness is. Buddhist mindfulness is a very focused and applied type of attention. It's not merely attention. So it's kind of like you're applying this attention to very specific requirement, a very specific purpose, a very specific direction. And that's the context of this 
right mindfulness and the four foundations of mindfulness. So this is also, even in Buddhist circles, quite often you will find a kind of delicious enjoyment of the intellectual aspects of uh, investigating the path and investigating all of the suttas that are available on mindfulness and the other path factors, and it can turn into a real encyclopedia. The Buddha never intended it that way. He's a very pragmatic and practical person. He wants people to benefit from this, and he wants to harness this into their lives. And he himself has claims to have great uh, benefit from it, and the primary benefit is a sense of sustained well-being and psychological happiness. And this is what he hopes to impart in his teachings. Again and again, he says it's for the purpose of this relief of suffering. So this is all harnessed in the relief of suffering. Now, this has been taken in many ways, sometimes into hospitals and other situations to uh, relieve the suffering of people with pain and so forth. But quite often it's uh, strangely been stripped of many qualities that the Buddha talks about, a context, in other words. So the idea that merely being mindful, just simply being mindful of the contents of what's going on in the body or in the mind, or the feelings, the sensations in the body, is not really the function of mindfulness in, in terms of Buddhism. So some people have uh, started in that school of the idea that merely watching and observing is going to somehow magically uh, improve the quality of their lives. It may not. In fact, uh, to just know and observe without a context, without a larger context, may actually make things worse. It's not mere observation. It simply isn't. There is such a thing as mere observation, and uh, this word sati could have been applied at the time of the Buddha by, in the general language to mere observation. But that is not the way the Buddha uses it, and he goes to great lengths to describe what it is and how it's used. And if we bypass that, we will not get to the destination. So it's important that we have the context. And so it is the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path. And if you don't, aren't aware of the Eightfold Path, you really need to listen to more of my talks. I've spent a lot of time going through the Eightfold Path, all of the path factors, and in particular, what precedes right mindfulness, that is right effort. And I have made an exhaustive series of talks on right effort. So it would be good if you really want to understand the context of right mindfulness, you will explore what precedes it, because it's not separate from that. It's all based on that. It's carrying out the instructions, actually, which have been given in right effort. And right effort is carrying out instructions which have been generally given 
in right understanding. So the whole context of the Eightfold Path, meaning the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, have to be understood. And all of the teachings of the Buddha really fold into, pack into the Eightfold Path, and the whole purpose of the teaching is delivered in that. So it behooves you to unpack the Eightfold Path, and then you will have you will have a growing sense of what is the purpose, function of mindfulness, right mindfulness. Referring to a particular uh, sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, quite often, well, it's called Maha Satipatthana. There's also Satipatthana. Sati, you, you see that root word, Sati in there. Maha just means great or large. The, the largest collection. Patana is the foundations of mindfulness. And we, in brief, say that in the seventh factor, the four foundations of mindfulness. And what are they? The first one is the body. The second, feelings, sensations. The third, mind itself, contemplation of the mind itself. And the fourth is uh, called Dhamma objects, sometimes translated as Dhamma objects, Dhamma nupasana. I translate this as Dhamma categories. And here you will find a set of menu, drop-down menus, which are little summaries of the most important teachings in the, in the syllabus of the, the Buddha. And so... These are the four study objects uh, of the, uh, this project of mindfulness, right mindfulness. So the first is the body. And it's, the, the Buddha is an incredibly lucid and logical uh, person as well. He's not merely a mystic in any way. He's able to express himself in, in incredible, with incredible clarity and, and uh, as a good teacher as well. Some of the things, the problems of logic that he solved were not, again, encountered in the West until the 18th century, the 17th, 18th, 19th century. He deals with issues like this uh, in the 5th century B.C., and in such a lucid way. So we're talking about the mind itself. And, and as we see in, in modern psychology of the last century or so, there's a lot of floundering around. When you come to the mind, it's such a vast, complex uh, structure that it's very difficult to analyze. And, uh, and then you have to decide also what are your values in life when you're when you're looking at the mind you have to you cannot just look at it without reference to uh, values so the buddha is giving all of this and so he is uh, unpacking the the structures of the mind and the first foundation that he uses to help you with this exercise of cultivating mindfulness is to look at the body and it's not an accident that the body comes first. 
the, act, the body itself is the most tangible and obvious and simplest thing to look at. This, the next level is feelings, and basically three types of feelings. Uh, he proliferates out all of the possible uh, feelings that you might, that a human might experience, but in base, basically uh, pleasant, neutral, and painful. And this is, of course, is a major part of, of human existence and the cause of much distress and much, uh, also much delight. And so that comes second. The third is the mind itself, and this is <coughs> self-awareness. What are, the, what are the emotions playing out through the mind? And primarily he addresses, he's actually interested in the uh, emotional texture of the mind. It's not simply the activities of the mind, but whether you're angry or not, uh, you're uh, greedy or not, constricted or expansive, uh, this kind of uh, awareness. So he's asking people to become much more aware. Can you name your mood? The, we would, in modern times, we would call these moods. Do you know your mood? By the way, not everybody does. They're so immersed quite often in a habitual mood that they're not aware. If they're asked, are you angry? Uh, they would say no. But what is the actual fact is that they are angry, but they're angry all the time, and that's normal, and so they don't know what you mean. So this is before we can uh, redirect the mind before we can purify the mind, before we can retrain the mind, we actually have to know what it is we're experiencing. This is difficult because it's very subjective. We can't experience another, the, we can't have the direct experience of another person's anger or sadness or happiness. We can, we can guess about it. We can see the expressions on their face. We can hear their reports. But we can't actually feel it. All we are left with is our own direct experience of these things. So this is why we're, uh, it's not so easy. It's not an external uh, shared reality. It's, it's an internal reality. The Buddha is asking us to become much more lucid about reporting our inner states. The last category is even more subtle, and it is the manipulation of, of inner states. It is after you have become aware in the third category, mindfulness of the mind, you are then to institute practices and attitudes uh, which favor the development of positive emotional and mental states and reduce and remove negative emotional mental states. This particular area, the last category, the fourth category, Dhamma-nupassana, mindfulness of Dhamma categories, is the least understood and the least taught and least practiced in, in uh, general mindfulness uh, circles. But this is the point of the exercise. And this is where we 
understand and which we become familiar that this is the exclusive area of uh, the Buddhist teachings. These are the exclusive uh, responsibilities of the development of mindfulness. Uh, so this is the uh, very, very important uh, category, and I will uh, speak extensively on this fourth foundation of mindfulness. So what is mindfulness to begin with? Uh, it is defined, and of course uh, many people attempt to talk about it. They talk about it as attention, but it's really not attention. It involves attention, but it is given as a simile in the, by the Buddha. So it is a sentry. And the sentry is guarding a gate of a walled city. And this sentry has been trained and must remain alert and awake and carry out the instructions. And it must not be prone to uh, laziness, negligence, uh, bribery, and deception. It must be reliable. Now, this is similar to... Uh, we don't have many walled cities these days, but we do have uh, police forces and so forth, and they're primarily also asked to keep an eye out for certain things, not just everything. They're not asked to just pay attention. You're not a, sent out in your police cruiser to pay attention to everything. You're sent out to watch for certain kinds of activities and not merely to observe them either, but to report them. And so this sentry is the simile for mindfulness. It's very, very important that we understand it as not merely attention, but a very specific type of attention, full of preliminary duties and instructions about what to watch for and what to do about the observation of certain things. This uh, is equivalent also to the uh, the military, and this is exactly how the military attempts to uh, control the situation. If you're in a hostile, uh, chaotic situation, you set up a perimeter that you want your safety zone. And no one comes into that because they might be uh, the enemy. So your, your sentries are to interrogate any Body that wants to enter that boundary. And that sentry needs to be quite intelligent and knows, has to know the qualities of this. And they're not to admit anybody who is a threat because once inside, you've lost a lot of the advantage. So this is primarily the first duty of the sentry is prevention not to allow negative, hostile, problematic elements in. This simile, the sentry, is very, very important because it applies to a lot of the meditation techniques, and specifically I will come back to the sentry idea in breath meditation. Breath meditation is widely taught. You find uh, the breath everywhere. 
And it's known as a, uh, a calming exercise and, and a help to control emotions, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But there is a specific type of meditation called breath meditation. And you are asked, in, in the instructions of breath meditation, there's a lot of confusion about what exactly the, is meant, but it really helps to have this simile of the sentry. The sentry is watching this gate uh, in a walled city. And only through this gate does the positive and negative, uh, those to be welcomed in and those to be prevented, uh, that gate is where the sentry needs to keep their attention. So what you have in breath meditation is a training of the sentry. So the breath meditation is an attempt to strengthen your capacity to pay attention. And the gate is uh, the, the, the entrance to the body, where the breath enters the body, is where the breath meditation sentry is asked to keep an eye on. Uh, so this is, we, we, we need these various uh, teachings, these various simile instructions to help us clarify what, it, what the Buddha is after, what is, what is meant by these things. There's a lot of confusion around this breath meditation, uh, where the instructions about where to place attention and so forth. But if we go back to the idea of the sentry, we see that the sentry's attention is specifically said, don't look inside the city, don't scan the horizon, keep your eyes on the gate, the gate to the city. What is the gate to the city? It's the point where uh, entrance to the body and entrance to the mind as well. So we're going to transfer some of this uh, exercise where we sustain attention without wandering on the place where breath enters the body. This is a, an identical situation to this idea of the sentry keeping their attention on the gate where visitors enter. The, the walled city is actually a simile for the body itself. And the, uh, the entrance is, there are a number of entrances. So there's the entrance, the physical entrance to the body. The breath enters the body physically. But there's also an entrance to the mind. And the, 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 the entrance to the mind is through the senses, through sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches. And then there's also ideas. And these ideas also come from the outside world. They come from, in the human realm, they don't just come from your instincts. They also arise from information in the world, people talking to you, authority figures, uh, teachers, etc. These are all entering into this walled city. So these are... These are kind of similes for both the physical body and then the mind. And this uh, structure of mindfulness is the needs to be trained. There's no hope. If uh, there's no, no sense of discrimination about what is profitable, wholesome, uplifting, leading to well-being and liberation, and that which leads to 
the opposite, then uh, you are, it's just a matter of time before your heightened unhappiness begins. In the same way, even uh, the body uh, needs a certain amount of care. Uh, and of course, a lot of things come into the body from the outside world, the, the food. So if you do not understand how to eat and what to eat and when to eat, and how to eat, uh, it's just a matter of time before things start to go downhill. And uh, where, does it, where does that enter? It's like keep your eye on your mouth, right? There's also the exit. Keep your eye on your mouth. What, what do you say? to How do you express yourself in the world? Because if you express yourself in the wrong way, then you're going to have difficulties, problems. The ear is what hears. It hears words. And, and of course, it's, words are one thing, but the interpretation of the words are another thing. So there's an entrance to the mind as well. So this century is keeping an eye on on all of these things. And of course, it's just a met, uh, metaphor, the eye. It's, not a, it's the internal eye, the eye of wisdom. It's an informed sentry. It's not merely a, a, an alarm system. It's actually much more sophisticated. So there's interrogation involved. What are you? What, what is it that's entering what is this emotion I am experiencing? What is the category of it? What are the specific duties towards it? If mindfulness practice is uh, missing this whole panoply of, of layers and instructions, then it's inadequate. It's not really what is meant uh, by the Buddhist uh, right mindfulness. And you, you can read many books on this uh, and hear various talks, and quite often they are um, missing some elements of this. There's such an emphasis, uh, an original emphasis on, on it being attention, and that, that attention is a merely a neutral thing. But it, in this case, it is not. And it is, uh, it's a highly informed and uh, cultured uh, type of attention. So this is a, a brief uh, introduction to what we will be dealing with during the, the, the next uh, week or so on mindfulness. And I want to go into details about each of these categories of mindfulness. There's a number of different aspects to mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of feelings and mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of dhamma categories, and particularly this last category, mindfulness of dhamma categories, teaching units. Usually, and most importantly, a set of five of negative factors and seven positive factors. And I will go into this in depth so this is merely an introduction, a general introduction to this, but very important and necessary because people plunge in. Uh, it has now become a very popular term. Mindfulness is widely used 
in the general language, you'll see articles on mindfulness, references to mindfulness, as if, and they use this word as if everybody knows what you're talking about, but actually it's a very slippery term. It wasn't around in the language generally used even until, I don't know, the last, it started to be, come into the general vocabulary in about 25 years ago, probably through Buddhism, and then adopt, adopted and uh, disseminated. And you'll see even in, uh, in elementary schools they're teaching mindfulness and so forth. But this, I really have to emphasize that it's, this is, um, it is not simply a general movement and, and the use of mindfulness as a training, etc., has wide possibilities. Even the, apparently the American military is recruiting mindfulness teachers to teach their soldiers to pay attention when they shoot people. So a sniper and so forth has to be mindful. Obviously, we're not teaching that kind of mindfulness. So you see that it's more or less value-free. Mindfulness is attention, but in Buddhism, it's not value-free. It's highly laden by values, very carefully structured and contoured by uh, ethical values. And not just ethical values, but positive psychological results. And so that's where I would like to head with this retreat. And so I will uh, be speaking about all of the various aspects of right mindfulness, but also other path factors and how it interlaces, because you cannot really extract it. It's a bit like a carburetor in a car, and if you pull that carburetor out and use it as a paperweight, it doesn't make much sense as a, how it functions in the whole unit, unless you understand how this thing plays out in a car engine and, and the, the whole purpose of the car, you know, it won't make overarching sense to anybody. So I want to put the carburetor of mindfulness back in the car and show you how it relates to the whole engine. And then where is this car going? What, what's this car for? Where are we going in this car? It's a vehicle after all. And the path, Eightfold Path, is a vehicle. And uh, we want to get this thing running and get in and go to its destination. So I'll leave that for you today. I will continue with uh, giving the eight precepts, and this is for those who are familiar with uh, Buddhist retreats, meditation retreats. The eight precepts are a standard practice. And I should say that uh, those who are unfamiliar with this I won't give a lengthy explanation of this. You will need to inform yourself from other sources about why, the, what's the value of these eight precepts, why do we take them, etc. But here are the eight precepts. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living being. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from any kind of sexual activity. I undertake the precept to refrain from false and harmful speech. 
I undertake the precept to refrain from consuming intoxicating drink and drugs which lead to carelessness. I undertake the precept to refrain from eating at inappropriate times. I undertake the precept to refrain from entertainment, beautification, and adornment. I undertake the precept to refrain from lying on a high or luxurious sleeping place. And then one says to oneself three times, I undertake these eight precepts. These are the eight precepts. They have virtue as the source of happiness. They have virtue as the source of true wealth. Have virtue as the source of peacefulness. Therefore, let virtue be purified. <laughs> 